uh, as, as we talked about last week, two of the ways that we're seeking to be better together uh, in the coming semester as we kind of roll into the fall here is uh, by having people be a part of our missional community groups, our small groups that get together every single week uh, that share dinner together and study scripture together, pray together, serve on mission together. Um, I think that Doug is probably one of the longest standing members of my missional community group. Is that right, Doug? It's been, what, like almost five years now. Yeah. So whenever we were recording that video and uh, he said, you know, I've got the best ministers. And I was thinking, all right, I really appreciate that, Doug. And then, and then he starts listing Moses and David and Solomon. I'm like, oh, okay. That's where he's going with that. Well, that's good too. We'll take it. Uh, you know, I was really hoping that's going to be our elders. But uh, no. So yeah, sign up for a missional community group. Our missional community groups start back September 11th. We have 11 different options to choose from. Uh, so we'd love for you to be a part of one of those. If you're already in one and you're like, I'm staying in the same place, sign up anyways. Those poster boards that we're using kind of right there around the connect table are what we're using to give our leaders, um, hey, these are the names of people that are going to be in your group this semester. I also want to encourage you to be a part of a serve team. Uh, we had our training day this morning where all of our team leaders from all of our different serve teams, uh, you know, kind of led all of their upcoming volunteers through what they're going to be doing this semester, what a role on that serve team will look like. Even if you missed this morning, please still sign up for a serve team. Our team leaders would love to send you an email that contains all of that information and get you on a team. Uh, we have some new opportunities as we're starting student ministry for sixth through 12th grade this upcoming uh, September. And also we're beginning a kindergarten through fifth grade ministry. So uh, maybe if you've wanted to serve in those two areas but haven't had the opportunity before, now we have those available. Or if you're new to the Oaks and you wanna jump in, this is a great way to say, I wanna be on the setup team um, or, you know, band or something like that, because uh, we want to put you not just where we need you, but where you need to be, and we believe that God has given you unique gifts to serve his kingdom, and so uh, we want to help you serve and use those here. Now, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Romans chapter 6. We're continuing our study through the book of Romans. Uh, we're jumping back into the book of Romans. We were in Romans last year from September through uh, December. We like to preach through books of the Bible and also realize that if we just went straight through the book of Romans from start to beginning, then we would be there for a couple years. And we feel the same way if we were to do that with the book of Mark. And so what we do is we just kind of go through books of the Bible, but we split them up through different portions of the year so that over a series of years, you're exposed to different genres of Scripture, different types of Scripture, narrative, epistles, all of these different ways that God has spoken to us, uh, but also so that you could understand the author's flow of thought, so that we could read the Bible as it was designed to be read, and we can understand who God is and what He's saying to us about Himself. Now, as we come to Romans 6, I think that we will find this passage to be extremely helpful. I think that as I have studied this passage, uh, not only in the past week, but just throughout the course of my life, that this has been exactly what I've needed time and time again. I think Romans 6 will be a helpful sermon for you because this sermon is for the Christian that is perpetually frustrated because they still struggle with sin. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you find yourself getting angry or impatient with people. And yet you've found that counting to five or taking deep breaths just isn't cutting it. And maybe you find yourself discouraged because you've given advice to fellow Christians about how to flee a certain sin, and, that, and yet you find yourself 
practicing that same sin again. And you're thinking, well, who am I to give anybody advice about anything? Maybe, maybe you find yourself in, in the situation where you've told your non-Christian family members or friends that if they would just trust in Jesus, he would save them from their sins. And yet you find yourself still practicing the, the very same impatience or materialism, struggling with jealousy, or the same selfishness that you're inviting them to forsake for following Jesus. And I think Romans 6 will be good news for you. The sermon is for the Christian that finally thinks that they've delivered the death punch to a certain sin in their life. And yet you're like, okay, I don't struggle with this anymore. And then oh, now there's this new besetting sin that pops up that seemed to not even bother you before. Maybe you find yourself and you're thinking, well, you know, I don't, I don't struggle with lust anymore. I can't, you know, really think of the last time that I found myself really in a battle with lust. And yet now I find myself buying things on Amazon that I don't really need. I have boxes unopened, just left all around my house. Could it be that we've confused spiritual maturity with sin management and we've never addressed the heart of the problem, which is the root of contentment? We need to preach the gospel to ourselves because we're not just, we're not satisfied with Christ. Maybe you find yourself in the Christian life stomping out the fire of one sin only to find that the sparks of it have spread to some other part of your life and you're just ready to throw up your hands. Uh, maybe you find yourself here and you're, and you're not a Christian. You'd say, you know what, I, I'm just kind of kicking the tires of Christianity, peeking over the fence of Christianity as it were. And yet you've come here because you found self-help to be of no help. Perhaps you've picked up some good habits over the years or even managed to uproot some of the bad ones. But what does that do for your guilt? What does that do with the shame that you feel? You see, eating better, holding the door for strangers, or even giving charitable donations, those are positive things, but they can't remove the shame of sins that were either committed by you against God or against you before God. You know that your moral and, and your greatest religious efforts aren't enough to hush the fear in your heart, that one day you might truly stand before a holy God, and you're not sure if your good works will be good enough. See, Romans 6 is good news for everyone in here, including the guy on stage, because we can come with our pride and shambles and stripped of any sense of self-righteousness, and we can approach the throne of God. We can come before God, and we are met with grace again with an open Bible, looking at Romans 6, we're able to fall into Christ's open arms, as wicked and vile as we might be. Where else would we run other than Christ? Who else has the power of safe? Who else can redeem and restore us? So to the hypocrites and imposters, the sinners and the saints, the inconsistent or exhausted, the death of Christ has declared you dead to sin. The life of Christ enables life with God. And your new life is just a foretaste of the life to come. So live. Brother, sister, Romans 6 is an invitation to live. If I was to summarize the, the thoughts in Romans 6, 1 through 14, in a simple statement, it would sound something like this. That we shouldn't continue to live in sin because we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Such a simple statement that will take a lifetime to completely understand. That, that we shouldn't continue to live in sin. That sh sin should not define us anymore. Why? Because Romans 6 declares you dead to sin. That because of Christ's work on the cross, you hold a death certificate in your hand that says, I am dead to sin and alive in Christ. 
Now let me bring you back up to speed whenever we get into the book of Romans here. Remember, Paul had not met the church in Rome before. Many of these people did not know Paul personally, but he was planning to make a visit. And so he wanted them to understand the credibility of his message. He wants this to be a place that becomes a future base for his missionary journeys. And so he's writing this full treatise of his gospel, his doctrine, so that they know Paul is a credible messenger of the gospel. That's why the book of Romans is often viewed as a single book that contains almost the entirety of the foundations of our faith when it comes to the gospel. So with the first five chapters of Paul's letter, he's been focusing on the idea that we are justified by faith, that we are made right with God through believing in what Christ has done. That's what justification is. And now he's going to, in in chapter 6, shift his focus slightly into the idea of sanctification. How do we grow? How do we change? How do we uh, continue to put aside sin and to follow Christ in obedience? That's what he's picking up on in chapter 6. And so what he's going to do is he's going to begin with a rhetorical question, and then he's going to give us an answer to that question and two reasons that we should believe that answer is true. And then after giving those two reasons, he's going to give us the first imperative that is in the book of Romans, the first command after six chapters. And it's going to be, hey, view yourself this way, dead to sin and alive in Christ. And then we're going to see kind of two responsibilities for us that flow from that. All right? So question, answer, two reasons, two responsibilities. I hope that this is an encouragement to you. Let's look at Romans 6. We'll pick up in verses 1 through 4. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Let's stop just at verse 1 with the question. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Another way to phrase this question is, is God's grace a free pass to sin all we want? Is God's grace a free pass to sin all that we want? You see, verse 1 begins with this question. Should we just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? It's almost as if Paul is anticipating uh, some of the things that people have already said about his gospel message or some of the things that people will say about his gospel message. Because some people critiqued Paul's message of grace, saying, if you just teach that God is gracious towards sinners and he will forgive people's sins, then people will just live however they want. People just go off the rails. You can't teach people that. And so here he's correcting them. Uh, This comes from what he just said in chapter 5, verse 20. He said, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. It reveals our sin in an even more full way. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now what did he just say? Well, in effect, he said, When God gave his commands through the Ten Commandments and the other commands of the Old Testament, it revealed that we didn't just sin against God in a handful of ways. It didn't reveal that we just sinned against God in dozens of ways. No, whenever the law of God came, it revealed that we have sinned against God in hundreds of ways, again and again, in repeated ways. We have rebelled against God, both unintentionally and on purpose. 
And when the law unveiled the depth of our sin and the height of our rebellion against a holy God, then it enabled us to understand all the more how vast God's grace to cover that sin must be. And so understanding how bad our sin is through the law enables us to understand how great God's grace truly is. But here's the wrong conclusion that Paul anticipates some people will come to. Some people could just say, well, since my sin makes much of God's grace, then I will sin more so that God can show more grace. And while that might seem ridiculous at first, we have to think about the fact that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome whenever he is in the city of Corinth. And we know that the city of Corinth abused the grace of God. I mean, we have a letter that is written in 1 Corinthians where Paul is literally rebuking the church in Corinth for getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, for getting drunk off the wine that they were serving at communion. He, he saw firsthand the destruction of, of a church, of a people who would call themselves Christians and yet abuse the grace of God to just live however they want. So he pleads with the church in Rome and he pleads with us saying, don't view the grace of God for your sin as just a free pass to live in sin however you might want. Perhaps an illustration is helpful here. You see, to live like this, like, like grace is just a free pass to sin all we want, would be something like a newly married husband. Walks down the aisle, he said his vows, it's his wedding day, and yet then he walks out of the church and he completely abandons his new wife. He spends all of the money that's in their joint bank account. He completely forgoes his responsibility as a husband. He takes advantage of his wife's love and the commitment that she has made to him. Now imagine if he shows back up on their doorstep a couple days later and he said, babe, whenever you made those vows to me, you said for better or for worse, and this is as bad as it can get. You said for richer or for poorer, and I spent all of our money. And now, now that you've continued to love me, even though I've spent all of our money, and even though I completely shirked my responsibilities, I know that you truly love me. Now everybody looking at our marriage knows the true depth of your love for me. Now, while this is a fictional scenario, we can all admit we don't like that guy. Why? Because you don't abuse someone's love, mercy, kindness, and grace like that if you truly love them. If you have truly been changed by the commitment of covenant love they have made to you, you don't act like that toward their kindness. And yet, how often do we do the same thing to God? Perhaps I've written this part for myself, but maybe it will apply to you too. We think to ourselves, well, God is gracious, so does it really matter if this is the last time that I commit this sin? It's not that big of a deal if I stretch the truth or talk bad about my friend behind their back or just replace my Bible reading for one day with scrolling through Instagram. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let's be a little bit more specific. Maybe, maybe we should say, should you continue to yell at your kids or grow frustrated with them that God's grace may abound? Should you continue to judge other Christians that are not like you or be bitter toward your spouse or your friends or your family members so that grace may abound? Should you continue to waste time at work or to live for other people's approval or popularity so that grace may abound? Should we continue to look to food for comfort so that grace may abound? And yet we find the answer in verse two. Paul says, by no means. Don't continue to live in sin. You have died to sin. So examine yourself for a moment. Do you ever use God's grace and forgiveness as an excuse to not follow Jesus or to not obey God's commands that just seem uncomfortable or too difficult? Do you ever decide in advance to indulge a sinful desire because you know that at the end of the day, God won't hold it against you? 
Do you ever use your circumstances to downplay obedience? You think, well, sure, God will give me grace because I was in a hurry. I was hungry. I was angry. I was lonely. I was tired. It's almost as if I didn't have a choice. You see, this is a warning for those of you that claim to be Christians, and yet there is no distinction in your vocabulary, your desires, or your lifestyle from those that don't claim to follow Christ. I want you to feel just how dangerous the trait of self-deception is. You see, it's hard to tell a backsliding Christian from someone that is not a Christian at all. The only difference is to be confronted with a truth like this that hits us in Romans 6 and to find yourself falling before God in genuine repentance. Maybe you hear a passage like this and you recognize, okay, I've been abusing the grace of God. And if that's true, then here's a moment to own up to it, to admit to God that you've been excusing your sin and presuming upon His grace to receive His grace afresh. To some degree, there's an action step for all of us here. Yes, we each have a tendency to take advantage of God's grace. We each have a tendency to downplay our sin. And yet for many of us, that might not feel like the primary issue. Maybe you say, you know what, I see that in my life, but, but I don't think that's primarily my struggle when it comes to repeated sin that crops up in my life. Maybe you're thankful for God's grace, and yet there's a pattern of sin in your life that seems to remain. I know that some of you are probably sitting here thinking, okay, how? How can I actually change? Why do I struggle with the same sin that I did years ago? Why am I not making more progress in the Christian life? And I think, I think that there's a part of the gospel that we often overlook. Could it be that the work of Christ has accomplished more than we think it does? I think so. Here's the answer to this question, that we don't have to live in sin. Verses 2 through 11 tell us that you do not have to live in sin. Let's read them in their entirety, verses 2 through 11. Paul says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We don't have to live in sin anymore. Why? The first reason that Paul gives in this passage is that because we, it is because we are united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. You see, in verses 2 through 11, Paul gives us a few reasons that we no longer have to live in sin. And he doesn't give these reasons in kind of a linear order, saying, well, this is A, this is B, this is C, or this is 1, 2, and 3. Uh, he kind of talks about them more in a circular way. And so we're going to see two themes arise, both our mystical union with Christ, our union with Christ is that doctrine, and then also our death to the power of sin. And so here first, he focuses on our union with Christ. That whenever you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit has knitted you together with Christ. The moment that you trust in Christ, something, something fundamentally changes about who you are. 
You see, the Holy Spirit unites you with Christ in such a way, in a spiritual sense, that all that is true of Christ now becomes true of you. This spiritual union is so inseparable and intimate that it is described in Scripture like marriage. Christ now lives in you, and you are now in Christ. The two have become one. Now let's look at how we see this throughout Romans 6. In verses 3 through 4, he relates it to the sacrament or, or the, the ordinance of baptism. You see, in verse 3, Paul illustrates that our union with Christ is similar to uh, what we see the moment that we are baptized and what it depicts. He said that every person has been, that has been baptized is symbolically representing our union with Christ. That whenever a Christian goes down into the water of baptism, it is almost like they are going into a coffin and showing to the world that I am dead to sin. My old man has died in the same way that Christ has died. I am now dead to sin. And in the same way, whenever they emerge, they are saying, I am a new creation. Just as Christ rose from the dead, I now have life in the same way that Christ has life and Christ has brought me to life through his resurrection. You see, when someone gets baptized at the Oaks, we repeat these same words from Romans 6, 4. Whenever someone goes down into the water, we say that you are now buried with Christ in baptism. And whenever they break the tension of the water again and breathe that first breath, we say you are now raised to walk in the newness of life. You are united with Christ. You have fundamentally changed. This is not simply a tradition in baptism. It is a declaration that something sacred and eternal has taken place in the life of a believer. Here's perhaps a, a quick application. If you have trusted in Christ and you have never been baptized, this is a great opportunity to say, I want to be baptized. On August 28th, we have a baptism class where you can learn more about being baptized and getting baptized right here at the Oaks. So that you can say, I know that baptism doesn't save me, but it symbolizes the fact that I've trusted in Christ and he has saved me. If you are a Christian, this is a reminder to look at verses 3 through 5 and, and see what has been symbolized through your baptism. That something has taken place that has declared you in union with Christ. That the moment that you trusted in Christ, you became one with him and you displayed that through your baptism. Look at the language in verse 5. It says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We are united with Christ. Both in his death, we are dead to sin, and in his resurrection, we are now given life. Christian, this means that Christ's death was sufficient to cover all of your sins. As the Puritan John Owen once said, the death of Christ is the death of sin. This means that if you have trusted in Christ, you should have no fear of judgment. Christ bore the full weight of judgment on the cross on your behalf. He absorbed the penalty of sin and death. His death was your death to sin. So if you're continually burdened by the fear of God's judgment, then you need to be reminded through the union of Christ that you are fully accepted in him. You can draw near to the Father with great confidence. If you are weighed down by the shame and guilt from past sins, even sins that you have committed this week, then see that those sins were washed away through the blood of Christ. If you view yourself primarily as a failure or a hypocrite or a letdown, then you've missed the fact that God the Father looks at you and doesn't see any of that. He sees you arrayed in the righteousness of Christ. You are washed in his blood. You are adorned by his death in radiant light. 
This is why Horatio Spafford, the great hymn writer of the song, It Is Well, penned these words, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not just in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Do you believe that this morning? Can you sing those lyrics with full confidence that your sin has been nailed to the cross of Christ? That that shame and guilt no longer weighs down upon you because it has been placed upon Christ. That whenever God the Father looks at you, he sees you hidden in Christ because the Holy Spirit has united you to Christ. That you can now live a life with God, drawing near to his throne, asking for help pleading for his mercy and that he desires to give it because he sees you as he sees his own son. We've been united with Christ in his death, but not only that, we share in his resurrection. See, verse four declares that we've been raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life, that we now not only are dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Verse five holds out the promise that we have been united in a death like his and we will also share in a resurrection like his. So don't miss this. What is the key to walking in the newness of life? It is that you are united to Christ in his resurrection. You see, the Holy Spirit has united you to Christ in such a way that your obedience and your growth, if you're sitting here wondering, how do I grow? How do I change? Your obedience and growth are not fueled by your own self-effort, but because you have been raised with Christ and you are united with a resurrected Christ, your obedience and growth are now fueled with resurrection power. That will change the way you live. The same power of God that made the ground shake on Easter morning, that caused war-hardened guards to fall like dead men outside of the tomb and made the dead heart of our Lord beat again is now coursing through your veins. Christian, Christ dwells within you. There's resurrection power through your union with Christ, through the Holy Spirit dwelling in you to obey God and to pursue righteousness. Dead to sin alive in Christ. You see, Paul describes our resurrection as both a present spiritual reality. Oh, this is real right now. Do you know that? Like if you're a Christian, do you think about that? I'm united with Christ right now. The power of the resurrection is in me right now to share the gospel with my neighbor, to, to have scripture illuminated before my eyes whenever I open it up in the morning, to no longer desire the same sins that once held me captive. Resurrection power is in you through your union with Christ. It's a present spiritual reality. It's also a future hope because we still fail, don't we? We still struggle with sin. And so Paul here is saying, you're united with Christ. You walk in the newness of life through the power of his resurrection. And guess what? One day, this mortal body that you have that still struggles with those same habits of sin that you spent a lifetime creating, you'll one day be freed from that. Your body will be fully glorified on the day that the trumpet sounds and you see Christ face to face and you will no longer struggle with sin ever again. So we don't have to live in sin anymore. We're united with Christ. So what does this mean for you? Walk in the newness of life. Think about it. If you spent an entire day doing yard work at your house and you're just covered up in your elbows with mud because you've been pulling weeds and, you know, your, your shirt's dirty and you're just dripping with sweat and you go inside and you take a shower, you finally get cleaned off. Now imagine if you were to go after that shower, dry off, and then reach into the dirty clothes hamper and put on that same shirt with mud all over it and the same pants and the same sweaty hat. You wouldn't do that. I mean, you've been cleansed from that. You've been purified from that. Here, here Paul is saying, hey, you came up out of the water. You left that sin behind. Don't, don't put those clothes back on. 
Maybe in, in a moment of vulnerability or honesty with a friend, you would say, you know, I, I kind of think I've put back some of those dirty clothes on. I think some of the things that used to characterize my life before Christ, you know, I think I've, I've slipped into those same old things again and began to wear them. And I, I've failed to realize I'm, I'm united with Christ. I live in a newness of life through Christ. And I imagine that friend would, would be able to say, me too, let's walk through this together. The second reason that we no longer have to live in sin is because we are dead to sin. We see this theme through uh, verses 1 through 11 again. And I, and I think I keep coming back to verse 2 because theologically I understand I'm united with Christ. And yet I still ask the question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Why do we still sin? If Paul is, is telling the truth here, we know he's telling the truth, Is he saying that we shouldn't sin anymore since we're now united with Christ? In what way have we we died to sin? And I think uh, to understand this question fully and to be able to apply this, we need to understand there are a few different categories of sin whenever we talk about sin. So there's the penalty of sin, there is the power of sin, and there is the presence of sin. Maybe it's helpful to think about sin in those three different ways. So that uh, there's a penalty for sin, death separation from God. There's a penalty for sin. There's also a power of sin, that you're enslaved to sin. And then there's also the presence of sin, like daily presence of sin in your life. And Christ deals with all three. The gospel deals with all three. You see, the death of Christ delivers us from the penalty of sin because Christ died to take the penalty of sin for us. He took death upon himself. The weight of sin was placed upon his shoulders. He died at the death that we should have died. That's propitiation. That's atonement. He takes care of the penalty of sin. Uh, The death of Christ also delivers us from the power of sin. It it frees us. This is the idea of redemption. You have been bought out of the slavery of sin that you gained through your first father, Adam, and now you are set free to walk in Christ. And then finally, the resurrection of Christ, uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being purified, daily frees us from the presence of sin And yet we will still face the presence of sin in our lives uh, until we ultimately stand before Christ and our bodies are completely glorified. Okay, so in Romans 6, what Paul is saying is, hey, the first five chapters of the book of Romans was talking about how Christ has dealt with the penalty of sin. God is both just and justifier. He has dealt with the penalty of your sin. You bear it no more. Okay, but then he says in chapter 6, we're going to deal with the power of sin being broken over you. You are no longer under Adam. This sinful nature that you were once enslaved to, you are now set free from that. That's done. And then he's going to say, and because this is true, live out the, the daily crucifying of the presence of sin in your life. Since the power of sin no longer has power or authority over you, You can live in such a way that the Holy Spirit continues to root out the presence of sin in your daily life until you see Christ face to face. You see, before, whenever we were under the lifestyle of Adam, Adam, whenever we were uh, born into this nature of sin, our spiritual compass never pointed north. Uh, even if we tried to do the right thing, it was for the wrong reasons. Romans 8, Romans 8, 7 says that those who do not know God are hostile to God. We have no ability to submit to his law. That's the bad news. But the good news of Romans 5 is that just as Adam's disobedience brought sin and condemnation to all to who were connected with him, for all who are connected in Christ, his righteousness, his obedience brings salvation to all. 
This means that the moment that you trust in Christ, the old master of sin is crucified. You are no longer under the curse of Adam because you have died to sin. We see that right here in Romans 6. Look there with me. Verse 2, Paul says you are dead to sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 6 says that Paul, Paul says that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin would be brought to nothing. Our old self was crucified with Christ so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Not only that, verse 7 says that we have been set free from sin. Verse 9 tells us that death no longer has dominion over us because we are united to Christ and death no longer has dominion over him. You see, the work of Christ, or the gospel, as we often say it, has fundamentally changed your relationship with sin. And this is huge. I think that this is probably one of the most overlooked daily applications of the Christian life. You see, I think we understand the work of forgiveness that Christ has freed us from the penalty of sin. We understand the work of forgiveness for when we sin. I sin, Christ covers that. Yes. But I think we fail to see that when temptation arises, because Christ has defeated the power of sin over us, we can look at sin and say, you are not my master anymore. I don't have to do what you say anymore. I don't have to bow to your power anymore. Let's imagine uh, just for a moment that you attended a rigid boarding school throughout your teenage years, right? So it's just this really strict boarding school that your parents put you in. And uh, each day you woke up at 6 a.m. and your entire existence was dictated by the headmaster of that school. So your hair had to be perfectly combed. Your uniform had to be completely free of wrinkles. You had to have your shirt tucked in. You couldn't slouch as you walked through the hallways or you'd get a slap on the wrist. You couldn't chew gum. Violating any of these rules would quickly send you to detention without warning or even worse. It's a very rigid place. But now imagine a few years. You've graduated. A few years have gone by, and you're walking through the grocery store. You're wearing a baseball cap, and you're just kind of leaned over your shopping cart right here, and you're minding your own business. And then you see your former headmaster from that boarding school turn into the same aisle that you were on. And immediately, you stand up straight. You try to hide the fact that you are chewing gum. You quickly take off your baseball cap, and you, you try to comb your hair so that it looks just right again. But then you remember, I'm no longer under your rule. You no longer have authority over me. I no longer have to submit to this life that you have called me to live under. No, your relationship to them has fundamentally changed. You see, in the same way, Paul is saying that that has taken place in the Christian life, that you are no longer under the tyranny of sin. You now walk in the newness of life, that sin no longer has power or authority over you. Understand this, that the work of Christ doesn't just forgive the penalty of sin, but frees us from the power and presence of sin. The work of Christ, the gospel, doesn't just free us from the penalty of sin, which I think most of us in the Christian life we're good on, right? We know that Jesus died to save us from our sins. Not only that, the gospel frees us from the daily power of sin in your life so that you can root out the presence of sin in your life. So whenever we say something like, Jesus saves me from my sin, I think we're saying more than we often realize we are. We're not simply speaking of the penalty of sin, but the daily power that sin has over us and the presence of sin in our lives. So if you want to make progress in the Christian life, you must see that the work of Christ frees you from the power and the presence of sin. 
There was once a time in which sin ruled you. Sin was your master. You lived in this old self, as Paul calls it here in Romans 6. So when presented with a lustful thought or a provoking image, you had no choice but to entertain it. When someone complimented your appearance or your work ethic, pride was the only option. Yeah, I'm great, aren't I? When something threatened your personal comfort or your convenience, you just simply chose the path of least resistance because ultimately you lived to serve yourself. Under Adam, it is as if our old man's hands were tied. Sin was the only option. But thanks be to God, according to verse 6, our old self was crucified, dead. Since Paul said in verse 9 that now death has no dominion over Christ, it now has no dominion over you. This is so freeing. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. We have been liberated from sin. Sin no longer has power over us. Therefore, the presence of sin in your life can decrease because the power of sin in your life is completely gone. So how then do we live? Responsibility one, do not let sin reign in your body to obey its passions. Look with me at verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. How do you balance Christ's work, doing everything needed for your salvation and sanctification, and your personal responsibility in your daily life? Well, here you have a responsibility. It's given to you in verse 12. Do not let sin reign in your body to obey its passions. See, Paul gives the Christian a command in light of these two truths. Since you have been united with Christ, since you are dead to sin, and and the resurrection has declared you new creation, life in Christ, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin reign. You see, here we see the important correlation between Christ's work and our responsibility. The entirety of verses 1 through 10 were in the passive tense. Not what you did, but what God has done. God buried you with Christ. God raised you with Christ. God united you with Christ. God declared you free from the power of sin in Christ. All what God has done. So what is your responsibility? It is now to live in light of this new identity. Just maybe meditate on Ephesians 1 this week. Think about who you are in Christ. Paul here says, don't invite sin to be your master again. You have a daily responsibility to remind yourself that you are in Christ. You don't have to obey sinful desires anymore. Will we still struggle with sin? Yes. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Paul is not saying here that we will now be sinless, but he is saying that as Christians united to Christ, we should daily sin less. So don't let sin reign. There's also a comfort here. By Paul giving this command, we should not be surprised that we still fight a daily battle with sin. Sin has been dethroned by Christ. It no longer has power over us, but it still wages war within us. You can imagine it almost like a war in which one army has taken hold of the nation's capital, and they've declared victory over their enemy. And while there is a new power and there's a new authority at the head of the nation, there are still skirmishes and battles that rage throughout the land. The Christian life is the same way. Christ has now taken over authority and power in our lives, and yet in our mortal body, these skirmishes and battles still rage as Christ continues to conquer and rule throughout our entire life. You see, in these mortal bodies, as 
Paul says here in verse 12, not to let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. In these mortal bodies, we are still yet to be fully glorified. And we still have passions or desires that are contrary to Christ's rule. That is why Peter, whenever he is speaking to the church, says this, Beloved, he reminds them who they are first, identity. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. See, these desires aren't just external, coming from the outside. These temptations for, for sin are also internal desires that still need to be conquered and crucified with the gospel, where you look at that sin and say, that's not who I am anymore. You see, because Paul gives this as a command, and I want to tread lightly here, this also means that we cannot use our desires to sin as excuses for sin. So you can't say, well, you know, I can't help to be a workaholic or that sometimes I, I neglect my family for the projects that need to get done because this is just how I was raised. This is what I saw modeled my whole life. You can't say, well, I can't be a good spouse because my parents' marriage, it, it ended in divorce. Or, you know, I'm just kind of genetically predisposed to certain sins. So, you know, I'm, I'm just an angry person or I just am always going to struggle with addiction or I have this same-sex attraction and I, there's just no choice but for me to live into this hand that I've been dealt. Maybe, maybe you're somebody who'd say, well, I only struggle with jealousy because I'm just not as well off as other people are. And Paul makes it very clear here that your mortal body has desires and passions that are contrary to God's will. And that is not an excuse to live in them, but an opportunity for Christ to crucify them with his death and to raise you to walk in the newness of life. You see, I'm not trying to make light of your battle with sin because trust me, I've got my own issues. But unfortunately, I feel like most of us are just comfortable with coddling our sin and then we settle for a life that doesn't fully enjoy the benefits of walking with Jesus. I mean, think about that. I mean, what if you truly embraced the fact that you've been raised to a newness of life and that you could walk near the Lord and the Holy Spirit was dwelling within you. Like, how would your life change? What would your life look like five years from now if you truly believed what Romans 6 says this morning? How would you run with freedom, laying aside every weight and sin that clings to you to pursue God? I think you would have no regrets. I think I would have no regrets. You see, as Christ was crucified, we must crucify our sins and leave them there to die. I think that too many of us, we kill our sins we say, you know what, I'm crucifying that thing. But then we, we return to the cross. We pick that sin back up. John Stott said, it is as if having nailed our old nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. We begin to long for its release, even to try to take it down again from the cross. But we need to learn to leave it there. We have crucified the flesh. We are never going to draw out the nails. So when that desire creeps in to shade the truth again, to take a second glance, or to exchange trusting God for worry, nail it to the cross. Don't let sin reign. Second responsibility, present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Paul says here in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Responsibility, too, is to present your members, your body, your life, to God as instruments of righteousness. See, in Paul's second command, he instructs the Christian about how to use their time, how to use their thoughts, how to use their bodies, because each day we have a choice. That is our responsibility. You can present your members to sin, to use it for fleeting pleasures or dishonor. 
or you can present yourself to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul compares us to a tool, an instrument that can be used for bad or good. So a hammer can be used to destroy a priceless sculpture, or a hammer can be used to build shelter so that someone would survive. A knife, when wielded by a criminal, can be used to take someone's life, and yet a knife wielded by a surgeon can preserve life and save it. See, Paul reminds us that as those who have been brought from death to life, we can now use our lives for God's glory and not sin. So your words should be used for encouragement, not gossip. Your authority or the leadership that you have should be used for the good of others and not your own personal gain. That your Bible knowledge should be used to teach fellow believers and to make disciples, not just win arguments over fourth-tier issues. Present your instruments, your life to God for His glory. And maybe you come to this part of the sermon and you're thinking, this all sounds great, but I've tried. I've tried this. I've tried to know that I'm united with Christ. I've tried to, to see myself as dead to sin. I've tried. And Paul closes with a promise in verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you. Maybe you should insert your name there. Sin will have no dominion over you. What confidence can you have as your battle with sin continues? Where do you look when sin knocks you flat on your back? Again, look to this promise that sin will have no dominion over you. You are not under law, but under grace because the law brings condemnation. The Ten Commandments can show you how far away you are from the perfection that God requires, but they have no ability to purify you. When sin gets the best of you, your response should not be trying to fix yourself, but fixing your eyes upon the work of Christ in this gospel. The Puritan John Bunyan once famously said, Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. The law says run, says do this, perform in this way, and yet we can't. It gives me no feet nor, nor hands. I can't, can't do it. And yet the gospel says fly, gives us wings, infused with the Holy Spirit, dwelled with the Holy Spirit, united with Christ to live in such a way that is contrary to the world and full of gospel hope. You see, in Christ, God's commands are no longer a standard to live up to, but a new reality to live into. And next week, we're going to talk at length about the ongoing work of sanctification. We get to talk about what is the definition of freedom, how do you live a free life, how is sanctification a part of the essential growth in the Christian life, and I can't wait for next week. But we have to survive the next six days. And so I want to give you, give you a couple items for homework this week as you remember that you are united with Christ and dead to sin. This week, see Christ for who he is. I want you to picture me and you just over coffee right now, maybe uh, just sharing a table because I think this is, this is deeply important for the Christian life. See Christ for who he is. See, Paul told the church in Philippi that he could do all things through Christ who strengthens him. What a, what a bold and audacious claim. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know that the same is true for you because you're united with Christ? Your ability to obey God and to avoid sin this week will not come from doubled down effort or a renewed sense of determination. It will only come from abiding in Christ. And that is exactly what Jesus offers. Behold his death on the cross as your death to the ruling power of sin. Receive the power of his resurrection as that strength enables you to say no to the sinful attitude or action when it arises. Reflect on Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. 
where, where we read that we can draw near to Christ, our high priest, and find grace to help in our time of need. This week, you will find yourself in a great time of need. And what does Hebrews 4 tell you? Don't run from Christ, but run to him. Run to him in his word. Run to him in your Christian community. Run to him in prayer and behold Christ. This week, I want you to see sin for what it is. See sin for what it is. It grieves the heart of God. In the Old Testament, when Potiphar's wife tried to entice Joseph, his first response was, how could I do this to my Lord? Is that your first response when sin arises? How could I do this to my Lord? He fled from sin because he saw it first and foremost as a betrayal of God's love and not just a personal failure or an offense to someone else. So I invite you to see sin for what it truly is grievous against the heart of God and a betrayal of his love toward us. And finally, I want you to see this week that your desire and fight to put sin to death is just a part of the process. Man, that's comforting. Your desire to fight to put sin to death is a part of the process. So don't grow discouraged. Your battle with sin will be one that you fight until your faith becomes sight and you see Christ face to face. We aim to walk in the newness of life, to walk in the newness of life, but we still stumble. Remember Proverbs 24, 16, the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. So yes, this ongoing struggle is even a part of God's sovereign plan to cultivate humility in you. Your struggle with sin is a daily reminder that you are completely dependent upon Jesus, and that's exactly where God wants you. As frustrating and difficult as our sins and shortcomings may be, they prove to remind us of the deep grace and steadfast love of God to complete the work that he began in us. So brother, sister, look to the cross. You are united with Christ in his death and you are dead to the power of sin and you are raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. Let's pray.